Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> Between the butcher oh, yeah. and the block. There's no creativity without vulnerability. Uh, welcome back, or just welcome, to Between the Butcher and the Block. Our guest is Nick. Hey, Nick. G'day. Are you happy to go by Nick, or would you like us to use a pseudonym? It's a bit fucking late now, isn't it? Well, no, because <laughs> I can edit that out. And then I can uh, edit no. out the bit where I say I can edit that out. <laughs> I'm quite happy to have the name that was given to me well, half a century ago. Half a century? Wow. I'm looming. You don't look 50-odd, mate. I'm, I'm... Well, uh, uh, he's up. I'm 49. Start, so. <laughs> oh, he's a spring chicken. Spring yeah. chicken. <laughs> a mere 49. I was born in 1971. Two great things happened in 1971. What were they? I was born. born. Nick was born. And South Sydney won the premiership. But I'm a 77 model. And I like to say that because I've read that some somewhere people that die pass on and babies don't have souls for like some time afterwards. So you read some weird shit. Steve. I like to think that Elvis died in August, come straight back to Earth into the little baby's body. That I could be Elvis. Thank you very much. How's this? I can remember the day Elvis died. I was in kindergarten, and some parents came and took their kids home from school. I was in about grade three, which makes sense. And there was, um, you know, the, the really tall, good-looking girl that all those grade three boys had a crush on, and probably some of the grade three girls as well. She was devastated. It was the end of her life. <laughs> I mean, people were seriously out of their minds with grief. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Weird. One of the first things I remember, actually, one of the first public things I remember was the Whitlam dismissal. Um, so it would have been in like grade one or something at the time. And all I remember was, I didn't quite understand it because I was like five or six years old or something. But I really remember my dad being furious. That's what I remember. My dad yeah. furious. Yeah. See, that's a bit highbrow for me. When you, when you said dismissal, I was thinking of the famous Australian underarm dismissal. That's, that's where I went. That was about my vintage. Right. That wasn't a dismissal. They needed, they needed six off the they last needed, ball and Trevor Chapel. And look at me talking about sport ball. You'll never hear me talking about sport balls. He had actually scored about 70 off about 12 deliveries or something. That's why. Yeah, he was absolutely going yeah. to take Chapel for, well, at least for form and forward of force the issue. What about Trevor? What about poor Trevor? Has, he ended up with. Um, Whatever happened Harold, to him? Harold Holt, didn't he? Did he end up going swimming and never get up? No I think he just, just, yeah, the other two brothers were, were um, you know, well, Greg only had a short... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. Trevor could have said no. Trevor could have said, I'm not doing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, Absolutely. he's only his big brother. Like, God. He would have had caught heaps of hidings in the past. So what's one more? That's exactly. true. That's and he and, and it wouldn't be compared to the hiding he got after that anyway. <laughs> yeah, the very right. public flogging, yeah. hanging out to dry. So that's the first time we've ever just sat around talking about sport on Between the Butcher and the Block. That's well, pretty much all, all Steve and I talk about. So that's, you know, welcome. Oh, Lord. Lord. I will feel right out on the outer. The mighty Rabbitohs are playing tonight. Another big victory for them, hopefully. Is that is that that? No net ball chucking game you call footy. No, that's the rugby union. Our blokes have nets. That's rugby league. No, they don't have nets either. I'm sorry to disappoint <laughs> you. No nets. <laughs> I prefer the... Uh, Wait, what, are you, what are you talking about? Should I take offence to that or what? <laughs> I don't know. I grew up in Western Australia, so when people say footy, I think of aerial ballet, you know, ping pong with the short yeah. shorts and the yeah, well, posts that make no sense at all and that sort of stuff. See that even if you miss, we'll give you some points for trying. Yeah, it's like it's a drawing participation title. award. It's like we're talking about bad form in sports. What about the bloke? We haven't got Olympics this year, but what about the bloke that trained for four years 
and comes last in the marathon. He could have not trained for four years. He still would have come last. Yeah, but he might have died well, in the attempt. Possibly, you know? yeah. That's yeah. cool. I mean, you still have to make it, though. You don't have to qualify even to Oh, yeah, they show they, up. There's poor buggers. They've trained their hearts out, yeah. given up their whole lives to, to compete and, and go to the Olympics. And do, you, do you reckon if you go to the Olympics and you come last, do you reckon you still go to yourself, well, at least I'm at the Olympics, or do you look, go to yourself, fuck, I'll come last? No, I think people think I'll go to the Olympics. And I read, I've seen something last night, or I read something that we shouldn't validate ourselves on the success or the outcome. The, the value is the trying. So success should be irrelevant from your thoughts, I think. That's not what Yoda said. Well, it's a bit like our locked and butcher. What did Yoda say? Well, Yoda said, do or do not, there is no try. Yeah, yeah. And every time I take one of those little quizzes online, which Star Wars character are you, I get Yoda. <laughs> Do you mean you've done that more than once? It's like that, um, you know, that Myers-Briggs personality typing? Yeah. I've done that probably six or seven times. Every time I do it, I get a completely different type. I've, I've met people who sort of tell you they're Myers-Briggs. They're Myers-Briggs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Myers-Briggs, yeah, that's really weird. Like they it lead with it. a lot about them. And even if you don't know what the letters stand for, yeah. the fact that they've told you tells you all you need to know about them. <laughs> I always think, oh, you really are such an INTJ too, now that I think about it. Well, look, since we started talking about sport, I'm curious to know. I mean, obviously you, you enjoy sport and a variety of sports. Yep. Um, uh, do, do you play now? Did you used to play? Did you yeah, of- I used to play school. I used to play rep um, basketball. And I was sort of half decent at that. And I've played, I've played kind of everything a little bit, but um, played a lot of uh, water polo. And now I, um, right now, as a 49 and a half year old, I, um, all I'm doing sport wise is I, I box a bit and uh, I swim in the ocean. That's to say the least, it's like about 6Ks every day. Wow. It's wow. not that far. It's not that far, Steve, but thanks. That's... <laughs> So I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, other than the physical fitness aspect, you know, staying healthy, staying in shape, which is yep. a big, important component. What do you enjoy about sporting activities? As a, as a kid and as a younger person, I really enjoyed the team stuff. Uh, I've never really did. I've never done a solo sport until I started boxing, actually. And even that is like, you know, like-minded people around you and training with you. Um, but I really liked the team aspect of stuff when I was a kid. I really liked the competitive act. I'm a pretty competitive sort of person. So I liked that. Um, but mostly what I do it now at least for is, well, two reasons. The only reason I train every day is so that I can eat donuts. Like it's the only, it's the only reason. But the secondary reason is because it's really good for my head. It's really good for my mental state. Yeah, in what way? Um, just clarity a little bit, a little bit of uh, aggression. Out Like boxing is really good for the days where I want to kill someone. Um, <laughs> and you do that seven often, days a week, Nick? Say again? You do that seven days a week? <laughs> no, I don't want to kill everyone every day, mate. But, but um, yeah, it's just, it's just really good that, that kind of endorphin thing, you know, like to have a big sweat up, get moving, makes me feel better about myself, actually. Um, right. And it also means the alternative of that is where I sit at home and, you know, God knows what's going on in my head while I'm sitting at home doing nothing. So, um, yeah, it's just a good, good avenue for me to get some outlet, really. Yeah, cool. Because I've just recently, I, like, I drop in and out of physical activity. Like, I do it for six, 12 months, and then I just go through a lazy phase and I pick it up again. And I've fairly recently just started, I mean, I love to walk, walk long distance has always done that but recently i've started just doing a few weights again just down mm. at the gym just lifting a few heavy objects repeatedly for no good reason yeah um complete waste of energy but um the thing is and nothing hardcore like you know just yeah um but i'm still surprised every time after a good session i'll be you know walking back and i'm just smiling I just feel so good and happy to be in the world. It's so easy to forget 
and you know, because I still go through that thing that I understand a lot of people do. We go, oh, I don't feel like it today. Even though I know I'm going to feel fantastic afterwards, there's still that inertia. Yeah. Does that ever go away? Uh, uh, it has never gone away for me. Yeah. Right. The, only difference is, yeah. the only difference is some days I think, oh, I can't be bothered going, you know, or I'm, I'm, I'm going to sleep in or whatever. And those are the days I know from experience now, those are the days I really need to go. You know, right. You know. yeah. right. And, and they're always the days. I, I always think I never regret a session of swimming or boxing or gym or I never regret it ever. So I might not want to do it and I might whinge and make all the excuses in the world, but I, I never go at the end, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. So I think that's the, that's the proof for me that that's what my body needs to do. I know that that, you know, people talk about movement being medicine. That's, that's it for me. I'm not particularly hardcore or anything like that. Yeah. I just, I just want to move every day and particularly the days when I don't want to are the days when I think I need to give myself a kick up the ass. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and typically whether you're doing weights or whether you're having a swim or, or, or a box, usually a couple of minutes into it, that's when it kicks in and you take off and you, and you feel great. Oh, I love doing it. Even yep. from the moment I start, it's getting myself into the room. That's the hard part. The moment I'm there, I'm fine. Even in the first minute, I'm loving it. But I have a, I have a mate who um, he owns a gym in uh, in sort of rural New South Wales, in the middle of nowhere. This little town, and he's the only gym in town, or whatever. But but he talks to his clients, the people who never go, who have never gone to the gym, and they don't want to, and they might be carrying a bit of weight, so they feel a bit self-conscious about going to a gym and you know whatever whatever and he's and he, he gets them to all they have to commit to is driving to the gym and putting their hand on the door and sometimes they do that and then they go home <laughs> yeah. and he's, but for the most part if they if they get dressed and they show up and they touch the door they're going in yeah yeah right. absolutely that's exactly right yeah well i used to ride my bike to the gym i had a gym that was further away I have one really close to me now, so it's much easier to kind of commit. But I'd ride my bike to the gym and then ride home, and I didn't need to go to the gym because I, you know, I'd done, you know, 45 yeah. minutes hard riding. So, well, you know. I, I still think it's just getting dressed and showing up. I used, so you used to play basketball, like um, semi-professionally or competitively? Yeah, I was, yeah, competitive, yeah. This is my basketball claim to fame. I had this finger, but well, you can't see this on the radio, everybody, this finger. My little finger on my right hand, broken by Luke Longley, who, you know, wow. is right, went on to be in the Dream Team, Chicago Bulls, etc. Was it on the court or was it in the classroom? No, he was completely uncoordinated <laughs> off the court. Like, he, it was a, he, the guy tripped over his own feet walking yeah. across the schoolyard, but on the court, he was magic. We actually played basketball together. He was way better than me then in high school. Um, and he got better and I got worse, so obviously. But was he, was he already was seven foot? Was he seven foot tall in high school? Yeah, yeah, well, certainly by the end of high school. Yeah, he was ridiculously tall. Right. And it, was one of, it sort of proved the thing that one of my, my first basketball coach said to me. He said, the amazing thing about basketball is the set of skills it uses are used nowhere else. So... <laughs> Apart from, you know, people who are ridiculously tall who have an advantage, anyone can get good at basketball. Yeah. And, and sure enough, I mean, I was able to apply myself and get, hmm, uh, not terrible at it, let's say. Yeah, and I mean, and, and like I said, Luke, lovely guy and obviously incredible basketball player, but yeah, not what you would call a coordinated person at all, but probably because he was seven feet tall and, you know. Yeah, it would be hard to coordinate all of that sort of size, that mass. Size. Yeah, totally, totally. Steve, why don't you hit Nick with your big question, a big scary question? Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. Since um, we've got you here, Nick, and we're very thankful for your time, who are you without using age... Uh, sex, family, career. Who are you as a metaphysical um, ponderous? Um, so I can't say that I'm a dad? Well, you can say you're a dad. And you can it's say cool. it, yeah. But we're kind of looking at, in a sense, if you strip away roles, yeah, you know, like whether it's 
I'm a doctor or I'm a father or those yep. sorts of things. Yep, yep, gotcha. What, what are you, as Steve says, metaphysical because he likes words with lots of syllables in them. Um, in a sense, I'll use words of one syllable. What do you stand for? I am someone who tries every day to be better than they were yesterday. And I try to be somebody who leads with kindness. Yeah, and our listeners can't see it because we're listening, but you're wearing a shirt that says Kindaf. Oh, it says Kind AF. It's beautiful. Just a black T-shirt, with very straightforward, large letters, Kind AF. I think that's beautiful, man. Yeah. yeah. And I watch a lot of you online, Nick. It's not, you're certainly changing yourself each day too, but you're certainly supporting other people um, that follow you daily as well. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so I work, um, so what I do for a living, I guess, um, if I can step out of the metaphysical for a sec, I, I, um, I work, so I have two, two jobs, really. I, I, I speak at conferences and stuff about um, mental health and particularly around entrepreneurial mental health, um, and then in particular around my own. So I, I talk about my own mental health challenges, uh, the illnesses that I live with in my head. Um, and in doing so, I kind of tend to go first in a lot of ways and let other people then also think about theirs and if they want to, you know, address theirs and, and, and be confronted by their challenges as well. And the other half of my life, the other half of my job is that I work as a therapist and a counsellor with people working through their stuff. And the majority of people I work with um, either are survivors of some kind of childhood trauma um, or, and, or, uh, people who live with addiction. So, um, that's kind of what I do in a professional sense as well. And I imagine but, those circles overlap a fair bit. People oh yeah. With childhood trauma and people living with addiction. Yeah. Um, definitely now, but, but it's also, it's also the entrepreneurial bent is also another overlapping Venn diagram because you know, if, if you are, if you are, um, show some sort of entrepreneurial flair or you want to own your own business or you want to have a startup or you, you know, whatever you want to have a podcast or whatever, then those people are six to seven more times more likely to live with a mood disturbance, depression, anxiety, PTSD. Um, so uh, yeah, it was really interesting that when you say entrepreneurial mental health, I think that's the phrase you use. Yeah. Unpack that phrase for me a little more. I mean, uh, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial people who have a mental health disturbance. So as opposed to that being a branch of mental health, it's just people who have some challenge to their mental health every day, but also... You don't don't mean like workplace psychology? No, no. I I, I mostly mean people are in that space who also live with dot, 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 whatever. Is there a link, Nick, between uh, people who are entrepreneurs and that mental health, like ADHD or depression, if it's not working? Yep, there is, there is a link. Because Nick just said that two minutes ago. (laughs) There is, uh, there's a study out of uh, UCLA or or CalU, I'll send you the link and you put it in your show notes, but it's, it, it shows that, yeah, if you, it doesn't say if you live with depression and anxiety, you'll be more likely to have, to be entrepreneurial. But what it does say is if you are entrepreneurial, you are more likely to have lived with those things. So it's not, it's causation and correlation, I suppose. It's yeah, like more it's of not, a correlation that these two things tend to go together. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah not, it was, um, I went to, this is slightly different, obviously, but I, I went to a, um, a talk at the, uh, was it the World Science Fair that was, was held up here a couple of years ago. I mean, it's held here every year, I think now, but, um, there was a fella talking about um, madness and genius. Well, that was the name of the, the, the topic. It was, and the place was packed, right? It was at the um, Brisbane Convention Centre. Um, but the, it was at the big auditorium there. It was totally packed. And what he was really talking about specifically was a link between um, mental illnesses, a variety of them, particularly kind of the psychotic variety, but also looked at anxiety and stuff and creativity rather than genius specifically, right? And there was a massive study done in Sweden and they looked at not just individuals, but the generation above and below them. And it was quite mind blowing how strong the correlation was. 
the only difference being with, um, in particular, like full-blown schizophrenia, it wasn't the person with schizophrenia themselves that was likely to go into a creative career because the schizophrenia is quite debilitating, but their immediate relatives were more likely. So, you know, because, and, and he defined creative career in a really interesting way. So it wasn't just the arts, it did include the arts, but it included, um, I think, things like engineering and, well, creative. It, it interpreted creative quite broadly. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me a lot of those links. I mean, sometimes, and I'll give my own bias here, I mean, you know, I've, I don't think I've talked about my own mental health on this show before, but it's pretty clear to anyone that's been listening that I'm not quite right in the head. Huh? Uh, I've been living with um, primarily anxiety for all of my adult life, um, possibly longer. And sometimes it feels like people with a, a lot of these conditions, if you want to call them that, it's almost like the voltage is turned up somehow. Mm. And so it's not surprising to me that that kind of relates to this kind of desire to create and i guess an entrepreneur as opposed to someone who goes into someone else's business and makes a shitload of money is essentially a creative there's someone who wants to create something even if it's not in the artistic sense is that fair yeah i think i think because i think it is fair because i feel like there's i i think there's no creativity without vulnerability right and there's no, there's no greater representation of people who feel vulnerability than those who people who live like you and I do with, with a chronic mental illness. Mm. Um, you know, we, we know what that's like to be vulnerable. Maybe we don't, not all of us stand up on a podcast and say it out loud, yeah. but we still know that's going on for us. That requires some vulnerability. And so I think that's, that's really well tied in with that creativity thing. But the, the thing that I would add to is people, people have kind of bastardized creativity a little bit too over the years where, you know, if you can't paint like Rembrandt, then, then you're not creative. Or if you oh. can't sing like whatever, then you're not, then you then don't, you know, but I, I kind of feel like, and this is something I do, do with my clients a lot. And, and just in myself, like it, when I make my bed, that's a, an epic creative moment for me every day. Like that's, I step back from it after I do it and it's schmick and I think, yeah, like that's my, you know, and it's some, for some people that might be, you know, putting peanut butter on the toast or mowing the lawn or, or baking a cake or doing the washing up a certain way. Like that, that all still requires creativity and it's still a creative process that gives birth to a creative thing, you know? And I feel like when people are more in touch with that and less trying to make the perfect shit, then, you know, they'll be more likely to be vulnerable, more likely to be creative, more likely to be happy and content in their mental health as well. Totally. For me, it's cooking and uh, brewing. Oh. Yeah. Oh, look, it's really interesting you should say that because um, it reminded me of two things. One is that um, when I train actors, which is one of the things I do, you know, just... <laughs> to while away the time between now and the grave, uh, I say to them, uh, one of my laws of acting um, is that the greatest quality that an actor can have, it's not the ability to memorise lines, it's not a, a, a good-looking face, not my own face, you know. That's what I It's not, not a Hemsworth face, yeah, it's Steve's face. It's not a big, deep, booming voice. It's, it's not the ability to cry at the, you know, the snap of the fingers. It's actually vulnerability, the ability to be wounded, and which is what vulnerability literally means. But in particular for an actor, the willingness to be seen to be wounded, because that's as an actor, you know, no one wants to go and see a, a play or a film about someone who's having a very nice day. Um, that's, that's not what the performing arts are about. They're about the most challenging things. And the, the other thing that you said I'm reminded of you know, like when you're in primary school and you all have to sing, and then at some point you get divided into those who can and those who can't, and those who can't should shut the fuck up, and those who can, it's okay, you're an artist, you're a singer or whatever, and it takes away that birthright that we all have to be creative. I mean, that's the thing about human beings, right? 
We're not particularly strong compared to other animals. We're not particularly fast. We're not particularly anything, um, but we're creative. That's where we've managed to, for better or worse, essentially take over the planet is through that creativity. Yeah, and we're conscious. Uh, yeah. But what you're saying is I could sing. I could be Elvis even though I can't sing. No, I think there's a difference, right? Everyone can sing and should sing, but that doesn't mean we want to pay. Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. That's what I was going to say. You, yeah, you, you just said you can't sing and that's not true. I can sing. I do sing regularly. Oh, please don't. Sing now, actually. I take that back. Sing us a song, Mr. Piano Man. <laughs> There'll be no singing sing today. Oh. <laughs> But, but you know what, that, that's what people do is that they're told when, whenever you were told, Steve, whatever age you were told that you can't sing or that somebody else is singing now, so be quiet, which is the same thing. Um, that stayed with you, that, that outer voice has become your inner voice and now you think you can't sing. Well, no, I play the guitar and I sing a tune, but I actually got an A in grade 12 for singing uh, Burn For You, Johnny Farmer. <laughs> That was my practical for grade 12 music. So there you go. There is a voice in there. So it's that thing of we, we've commercialised everything, commodified it, if not commercialised it. It's like, okay, if you can't sing well enough that people or sing or paint or act or whatever, that people want to pay you to do it, you shouldn't do it at all. Yeah. I think that's the and, issue. And, and, and it's, it also says that uh, a singer or an entertainer who, who's in the music industry is just the voice, which is, which is not true. There's plenty of people who are world-renowned singers and, and world-renowned musician, you know, musical artists who are nowhere near the best singer in their family. Fellas, you know, you, you know, it's just, but it's whether they can get up and be vulnerable and be confident and sell themselves, you know, like that's what I think makes, makes a real difference to that sort of stuff is, yeah. And it's interesting, Nick, because you've worked with social media before. You were at Facebook. Um, I watched that social dilemma last night, and it, it's not just singing, but it's just kids being kids too. Like, I, I make a point of not saying to my nieces how beautiful they are because I don't want them at 20 thinking that's how they uh, have value in the world. Um, but they said last night in the show that suicide rates for preteen girls is up like 150% due to the Instagram and the postings and the social media sites. Uh, do you have much influence with the with the younger population? Um, no, only my children. Hopefully, I do anyway. Um, but I know that that uh, you know you're right, Steve. It's way too heavily based on the popularity contest, the likes, the you know whatever. To the point where Instagram actually changed it, changed their their policy in the way that they present the the, the app last year, so that. It doesn't say a photo has 157 likes anymore. It says Steve Dunn and others like this. And and you know, two clicks in, a person can find how many photo how many likes are on that photo, but the chick bullying her in year eight can't. Mm. You, you know, and so that's that's been a big shift for social media stuff in general, is to take the emphasis away from the metrics that are just vanity metrics. They don't mean anything. It doesn't mm. mean if 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 a photo has two hundred likes and the other photo has two likes, it doesn't mean that first photo is a hundred times better. It's, no. it's just got more likes. But I've got a question for you because this is interesting because it relates to obviously to mental health and to uh, social media. And I don't want to get into the social media bashing. I mean that's pointless. We have social media. It's here. It's not going anywhere. But the question I had was this actually relating to mental health. One of the wisest things that I ever heard, and this was even before the social media period where I was talking about, oh, this couple that I know, their relationship is so good, they were this, that and the other, and someone said to me, you know, the reason we're so dissatisfied is that we compare our insides to other people's outsides. We know our own internal experience, but we only see what we're showing. We only see the outside of other people's experiences. So it's very easy to look at someone's relationship and go, ooh, it's perfect. But you don't know what it's like on the inside. And your own relationship or like life, you know what that's like on the inside. And it, it seems that a lot of social media seems to be very much about uh, uh, an identity that is a, a, a public image or presenting a particular image. 
and that that could, at least for many people, exacerbate that idea of, oh, look at that person's life, oh, look at all this, the smiley photos, the cool things they're doing, the places they're going, why isn't my life like that? And again, we're not going to take social media away, but how would social media, well, yeah, Steve's question, how is it evolving? But how would or could it evolve to um, maybe overcome that, supersede it, to, to be more beneficial? That's a huge question. Sorry. That's all right. I, I feel like I just want to take one step back, right? Yes. So, uh, as Steve said, yeah, I've, I've worked in, I've worked for two social media, big social media brands uh, in my life. So, I have a little bit of uh, experience and inside knowledge, I suppose, on how those platforms work. But the one thing I would like to say is that it's not a popular opinion, right? But is that those things are happening anyway. Social media is being blamed for a lot of things because it amplifies what is otherwise just every day. If you look at two people, you know, who are married, you mostly probably think they're doing okay anyway. Like people are showing you their highlight reel all the time anyway. Yes. in just general daily life you don't see too many people having a big bust up in coals you know married couple talking you know you'll see that stuff online being perfect but it's really just what happens offline as well you you only send you only see what people want to show you it's a, it just amplifies it it just yeah. makes it visible to more people i i, I just don't i'm just not going to cop that you know it makes people's highlight reel and that's who that it's Instagram's fault. Instagram is just the I mean, avenue from which that yeah. gets magnified out. Well, I had that experience before the days of social media. So yeah, absolutely. Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, and you think about our parents, right? Unless you, you're in a particularly traumatic household or, or whatever you mostly, most people thought that their parents' marriage and most of their friends' parents' marriages were perfect. were great. Right, because all that stuff that showed that they weren't was fucking hidden from us. Yes, just like it is now on Instagram. Right, people talk about these silos of opinion. You know, you, you know, you should like pages of people you absolutely disagree with who are who are you know politically different from you. I just don't believe that because I don't do that in my life. Why would I do it online? Like, right. I we we operate in silos. If I think someone's a dickhead. I don't, I'm not going to spend time with them. I'm not going to listen to them, right? And just like online, I don't want to. I don't want to trawl through pages and pages and pages of somebody talking about something which I abjectly disagree with, because that's going to make me a better person or some shit. Like I'm, I, I'm got time for that. <laughs> but the fact that you're very real too, and that's why you've got such a following on on Instagram and different things. Is like you posted the other day in your budgets. Oh yeah. And I thought, oh Nick, what are you doing? But then you hear the backstory and it's quite powerful that you've had some body issue problems in your past. Yep. And that's, that's a massive thing for women, especially as they age. So it, it's a massive force that you are in saying, this is who I am inside this body and this is what I'm projecting out, the real stuff. Yeah, so. and, and I think the more people can, can give zero fucks, even if you have to force yourself to, then that's that again. That's that vulnerability that comes from going. Okay, this is this is me. You know, if you don't, if you're not up for that, the better I know now. And that's the same reason why Steve, why I talk about my my crazy, is you know that's just me. It's just I, I didn't I didn't ask for it. I, I didn't I didn't make it. It just it just lives in there. You know, if I had if I had diabetes or if I had. Uh, I don't know, some other chronic thing that was physical and visible, then I would take medication for that without any shame. I would talk about it without any shame. Yeah. People would know about it without any shame. It just happens. So it happens that my chronic illness is in my head. I didn't, I didn't put my hand up for that. There's, there's six out of eight blokes every day are committing, middle-aged blokes are committing suicide. So some that follow you, I suspect, are just showing up every day just to see you and you probably help them get through the night. Maybe, but I think everyone's doing that, Steve. I think everyone who can, who can show up and be who you are in that moment, even if it's a pretty crap day or, or whatever, like, and it goes back to, you know, the highlight reel that, that social media gets blamed for. Like, 
how many times do you ask somebody just off the cuff? Like, it's just a thing you say, g'day, how you going? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Is, is that real? Is that true? Are you really good? You know, like most times that might be true, but I know that I have said in the past when someone said, how you going? And, and my initial thing is I'm going, fuck, I want to kill myself. Right. But that's not, but then I go, oh, I'm good. I'm all right. You just hang on to it, don't you? You just fight another day. Push that shit down. And that's not helpful. Right? Not that, not that, you know, you, you want to be, probably don't want to be telling people every day you want to kill yourself unless that's true and which you should tell somebody but you know i just feel like the more you can get in touch with that shit that's actually real yeah is actually you that's that's why that's how i've turned all my crazy into my superpowers how i've changed it from being the crap that i should be ashamed of or some or some shit into, you know, it's actually what makes me me. The fact that I have these things going on in my head is makes up who I am as 49-year-old me. There's a good campaign at the moment, Nick, where it's a follow-up from are you okay to then what's the next step? Yeah. I love that. I love the... Someone posted the other day on are you okay day, posted, uh, you know, today's are you okay day. Um, tomorrow, ask the next question. And yeah. the next question is... Are you really okay? Or what's going on? You know, can I help? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the other, like people don't want to. So I, I do a bit of work with Lifeline. I'm an ambassador for Lifeline. So I, I know a little bit about that suicide space. And a lot of people are terrified to talk to somebody who they think might be suicidal about suicide mm. because the perception of that person is if I bring it up, they will kill themselves, which is, miles away from the truth um but that's why people don't ask which is why are you okay even came about you what know? do you do if someone says yes or, or, or like you say then they're stuck in this wilderness of oh no well, what yeah, is but, the next step? but then then you ask the next question like mm -hmm. are you safe um can what can how can i help tell me what to do there's a whole lot of things that that just that first conversation and some people bag are you okay day because it's a superficial thing it doesn't really but that's just really negative like the amount of conversations that must have been started not necessarily on are you okay day but every other day of the year because we have a whole day dedicated to are you actually okay finding those people and saying are you okay so, so, just just have so many conversations where someone goes i'm not i'm fucking struggling like yeah i don't understand this i don't know what's happening and but it doesn't create the problem. The problem was already there. It was just in the dark. It brings it out into the light. And then you're right. Are you okay is not the be all and end all, but at least it's the beginning of a conversation. And it's a conversation that if that day didn't exist, millions of people would never ask that question. Yeah, especially not in this country. That's right. I think because we, we only want to know, how you going? What do you do for work? Um, how's the family? Like, all that sort of bullshit, which is just superficial nonsense. Like no one ever says, um, are you happy? You know, are you sad? Do you feel like killing yourself? Like whatever it might be, which is the next question. Nobody well, says that. Nick, we'll try and get off that for now. You're very right. Can I just, you're happy for us to say where, where people can find you if they want to. Yeah, mate. Um, Insta, Google, uh, Facebook, Nick Bowditch. Yep, or across all the socials, I'm at Nick Bowdish. Okay. Word. So N I C K B O W D I T C H. Correct. Cool. And believe it or not, we've got two questions that we ask, and the second one is, "Are you happy? How do you define it? How do you know? Do you even care?" Uh, it's so funny. It's so funny you bring that up because I say that to my kids all the time, like all the time. I say to my kids on the phone or in person, you know instead of how are you going or what happened today or tell me about school, which they all just go, nothing, nothing, nothing. You know, when you say what yeah. happened, I say, you know, are you Why happy? Why are we paying all this money to send you to school if nothing happened? Because it's a too vague a question, isn't it? It's a silly question. Instead of that, I say to them, are you happy? And you'd be amazed when you ask that as a matter of course in your day, ask it of people, you'd be really surprised how many people go, fuck, not really. Or well, I was yesterday, but now I'm not. Or I am happy today, but I've been miserable for three months. And, you know, and then ask the next question. Like, 
Yeah, how long is that been going on? What can I do? I think part of the other thing, just sorry, Steve, I'll circle back to where you are in a sec, but part of the other problem with that is then people say, how can I help, right? Instead of just saying, instead of internalizing, I'm going to help. So I'll do this for you. You know, like it's when, when people go through a grief or something and say they, they lose a, lose a partner, right. Who's killed in some accident or some terrible, some terrible thing. And people go, Oh, you know, how are you? Well, it's a stupid question. You're fucking gutted. But then then people will say, you know, what can I do? And the, and the grieving person, because they're in grief goes nothing. I'm all right. Instead of just showing up with a lasagna. Yeah. You know, that's what you can do. Like use your fucking head. Like what's this person not going to want to do? Do that for them. That's right. There's a, there's a TED talk that I watched and he, he starts off, he goes for 10 minutes, but he said the biggest thing that he'd done in his life up till then was have a shower. And that's how he starts his uh, mm. TED talk. Minutes later or seven minutes, 12 minutes later, his best friend's committed suicide. And he couldn't get out of the shower for months and months or, or he didn't get into the shower. And his mm. friend came around and said, have a shower. Mm. Uh, well, I, I guess our follow-up question is, how do you recognise happiness? Um, and and you, uh, would you be one that, would, would want it to come from the inside opposed to others that through the social medias are looking for it on the outside? Uh, how do you define happiness? Um, I, I'm, I'm a bit confused by that, you know, when I think about it, because I don't think happiness is the absence of sadness, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't think it's a, a fucking spectrum, which you can't be both. They can totally coexist. Oh, I'm, I know, you know, I've been happy and sad today. You, you know, so I know that that's, that that's true. Um, how I define it, I guess, is just being able to be on earth for me first, being able to put myself first in every situation that makes me happy. That ensures I am happy. It also ensures I'm the best version of me. So I might be able to help somebody else. If I, if I'm not putting myself first, I'm fuck all help, help to anybody else. Like I can't help anyone. So I have to put myself first. That makes me happy. And then I feel happy. I know that I am putting myself first. I want to um, go back to when we first asked you, who are you? You said, so you don't want me to say I'm a dad. But obviously, that's something that's, that's key to you. Look that's, at you smiling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I guess it's a little bit like, Obviously, being a dad is a big part of your identity and what brings you, if not happiness, I'm sure it brings you plenty of happiness, then joy, if I can make that distinction. I think joy is a much more lasting state than happiness, right? Um, What is it about parenthood that floats your boat, so to speak? I think just because I was convinced for a long time that it was never going to be me, that, that I never thought... I never, never wanted them. Like I, I, you know, I just didn't, I just thought I'd be the guy who didn't have them just be a good uncle. And, you know, I thought I'd be the funkle and, uh, <laughs> and I, am, I am actually the funkle, but, uh, but I'm, I'm like a serious responsible dad and a terribly irresponsible uncle. But yeah, I think just that the fact that I never thought it'd be, be me. And then the moment when I held my first baby, and I knew that like literally when she was in my hands and I knew that my life would never, ever be the same. That's for a, sure. lot of, a lot of people talk about that moment being that's the moment I knew my life didn't matter without them or I, my life was going to be devoted to them. And I think that's a really fucking unhealthy thought to have because uh, you're not actually servicing, serving your children well if all you're doing is being alive for them. Like that's a terrible thing to to aspire to. So for me, I know that I know the joy they bring me. I know the frustration they bring me as well and the challenges, but um, you know, I look at them, I've got four, four little beautiful things and I look at them and just know, I know that that's the best thing I ever did. And so how old were you when you became a father for the first time? 38. Same here. I mean, not counting all the ones overseas um <laughs> so there's time for you yet steve yeah it's pretty interesting isn't it? i remember rocking up to kindy one day and um one of my kids kindy mates saying 
Are you someone's grandpa? <laughs> Shut up, kid. Ow! It's it's because um, I also didn't think that I was. Well, not only didn't I think I would be ever in that situation, I was nowhere near ready for it either. Is anyone really ever ready for it though? That's the. I mean, because this race You know what? I reckon at fifty or forty-nine and a half, I reckon I'm ready for a newborn now. Wow. Like, I reckon now I'd be, okay, I understand what, what they'll need from me. I understand the commitment of time and everything else and the, the, the spirit and the energy and your heart that you need for that. And I, I, I would understand, you know, I'd be ready for the disappointments that come with it too and the, the wondering, you know, stuff with a kid. Like, am I doing it right? And am I fucking this child up because I don't know what I'm doing, you know? all that stuff. I wouldn't have any of those stuff at 50 that I had at 38. And if I had a baby when I was 24 or something, my God, like that, good luck to that kid. Cause I don't, I would not be any use to that kid at all. Yeah. I know what you mean, but like in, in evolutionary terms, you and I should be dead already. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, having a kid at 16, 17, 18 is, is, is kind of what the, the biological, entity is designed for if you will it's just that we've through us through our creativity and our consciousness have changed the way that we live in the world i'm not saying well, that's a bad that's thing it. or a good like, thing, it's like, a thing. Bio, bio, biologically yeah we're supposed to have a baby when we're 16 17 but the societal construct goes no 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 you're you're too immature for this you can't and even like, you think about 100 years ago when you know people were fighting on all over the world, literally the world was at war with itself. And there was 16 year olds, 17 year olds fighting in the war. Like the maturity of that 16 year old and this 49 year old isn't even the same. Like I, I'm not brave enough for that. I'm not mature enough for that. So it's just because the societal construct in the hundred years has made us fucking idiots. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I, I would be ready now, but, but I'm glad it happened when it, did for me and and yeah they're just they're just the best thing they ever did totally agree with you there hey listen in this series of between the butcher and the block 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 block, block. <laughs> we have sometimes on purpose and sometimes by accident but in every previous episode we have at some point touched on um the correctional system and prisons and uh, my understanding is that you uh, paid at least one visit to uh, a prison to talk to some of the, the, the people there. I don't know whether you've ever done time or anything like that, or, but what, what was it that brought you in contact with that world and what did you find there? So I've been to a couple to, to speak to groups of you know, people who are residents there. Um, and they almost always came from my speaking work generally at conferences. People were, were in an audience and they happened to work, you know, in corrections or whatever. And I thought, oh, you'd be good to come and talk to this mob, you know. So that's kind of how, how, how it happened each time. The thing that, the, the thing that I enjoy and enjoyed and do enjoy about that audience in particular is if somebody is coming to a, a presentation that I'm giving in a, in a prison or in a, you know, correctional facility somewhere then they're the ones who want to listen and i've never i've never felt in the three or four that i've done now i've never felt judged not ever and and it's a bit like when you sit in a 12-step meeting in a narcotics anonymous meeting or whatever i don't know you guys have to do that but i do and so when you sit in that sort of room and and somebody will share something that is should be bristling with shame, like it's a terrible thing. That they, and they are shamefully admitting what they've done in the past. Week. And everyone in the room just sort of nods and goes, oh yeah, I've, I've done that. Or that's no big deal. You know, like, yeah. and it's that sort of lack of judgment, which is just really comfortable in that, in that setting. But, that, you know, and, and the other reason I think, and, and Stephen, I've spoken this about, about this before, is prisons should be, like corrections should be the U-turn, not the fucking full stop you know otherwise what's the point like there's no point to it if you're just gonna go you go over there behind that fence and never come out again and never try yeah you know, never try to be better or change 
you know, your experience or whatever. There's no point of that. So if I can be part of any a rehabilitative process for, for one person, um, that helps me selfishly. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it might, it might help them too. Yeah, right. And so you said that, you know, when you go in and speak there, you never feel judged. Can I take from that the, the implication that there have been places where you've gone to speak where you have felt judgment? Yeah, I feel it all the time. Like, What's that about, do you think? Um, it's about my, about my honesty of my lived experience. That's what it's about. Oh. Oh, and let me clarify. I don't, I don't feel judged to the point where I shrink up and go, oh, fuck, I'm ho-. Like, I just feel it. I just, I just know it. When you, when you tell somebody that, you've, that you're an addict or when you tell somebody that you're mad <laughs> and they have no experience of that stuff, no lived experience of their own, they judge you for that. Of course they do. It's just how, that's how humans work until they go, Oh, well, those things are true about you, but I like this, this, and this about you too. And that counteracts that. And therefore I'm not going to judge you. But the the first step for people is judgment, unfortunately. And it's just words, you know, words have power. The, to, to call someone a junkie is a fucking terrible word. Like, it's a terrible thing to say. Like that, that word really affects me. I really, I can't handle it. I'll, if someone says that I'll have a go, you know, like about someone else because it's just so labeling. And that's what I think that's where, that's the challenge of that stuff for me. The judgment comes from the, from the label that, that needn't be applied. You know, if you're, if you're perfect, then fucking fill your boots. Go nuts. Like, judge me all you want. <laughs> Good for you. Yep. You have won at life. Move on. Yep. But, I, but I've never met that person. And I yeah. honestly I fucking hope I never meet somebody who thinks they're perfect. Actually. He sounded like that bloke from Galilee. It's, you know, where he was about well, to cast the first ironically, time. Ironically, that guy would tell somebody else not to think they're perfect and to have a go as well. So. Right. And I remember reading, oh, I can't, might have talked about this before, I'm not sure, a book that I read that's actually about therapy. Um, but the title of the book alone was transformative. It's called, uh, If You Meet the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him. And it's a book about therapy. The and Buddha about, said that too, didn't you? I think that's where it comes from. So it, it comes from this idea of not, that no one should set themselves up as having all the answers, as being perfect. And if they do, that's not someone to be putting their trust in. But we encounter this all the time too, do we not, Steve? That um, Because we've talked about before that we've both worked in um, Shakespeare in prisons. And uh, when people come in from the outside to see a show, and it's something about the shared experience. Um, if you just took a bunch of people from the outside who'd had no contact with prisons and brought them into a prison and put them in a room with a bunch of prisoners, they'd probably be like, you know, freaked out up against the wall, whatever. Ooh, prisoners, there's a label, right? Criminal. It might as well say that instead mm. of correctional center issue on the shirt. Might as well just say criminal because it's a label, right? Now you can't expect people to say, come in, you can only come in here once you've had the same lived experience as this person, but because they come in and they go through a creative experience together, in, in the case of what we do, it's the performance of a play, but it could be anything, right? It could be a freaking basket weaving lesson or something like that. At the end of it, they, they, people are talking, talking equally, one-on-one, folks from the outside, folks on the inside, complete strangers, and people come away from that, the outsiders, and they say, well, they're just like normal people. And it's like, aha, uh-huh, funny that, because, yeah, that's exactly who we all are. When I have been in that environment and when I'm around people who've, you know, who's, whose resilience has, shown, has, has put them back into our society on this side of the fence, um, I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, they, they just make different mistakes. They've just made a different mistake. Yeah. They haven't well, made more mistakes than us. They've just made different mistakes. And... Absolutely. Well put. Because I have some lived experience in, 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 that, in that audience, you know, in that environment with people who live in that environment all the time. So I know that it's not fucking prisoner. It's not like I, I know. I'm sure there is. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm, there's, there's light and shade, right? I'm sure that. But I know that I have never felt, um, I've never felt intimidated. I've never felt unsafe. I've never felt judged, you know. And then I think about, whether I could say that 
in this side of the world. Well, and I have felt true. intimidated and judged in uh, prison by the guards, some of the guards, never by the uh, inmates or very, very rarely, like you say. It's not... Well, see, every time I've done a speaking gig or something in, in, in one of those places, I haven't had much to do with the guards yeah. uh, as much as, you know, with the, the social work side of it or the, you know, the people who are putting programs in place in order to rehabilitate people and help them and teach them something. So they're a different, different mob, really. It's one of the things I learned. There's actually a whole bunch of different tribes in there. Um, even in, in just the people that are paid by corrections, there's a whole bunch of different vested interest groups in there, each with their own agenda and so on. But to bring it back around to social media, it was fascinating what you said about social media is very similar to something that I've been saying for years about um, uh, high security prisons, which is they're microcosms. They're exactly like the world otherwise except that they amplify, they magnify. It's like life under a microscope or in a pressure cooker. You don't see anything in there that you won't see out here. You just see it kind of blowing up a bit. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. You're mocking me, aren't you? Like they're three days, no coffee, no social media, wanting to tear strips off each other. I would be killing yeah. people with no coffee for three <laughs> days, jeez. But you said, you, there's nothing in there that isn't out here, but it's actually even more acute than that because there's more of a lot of things in there in amongst that organ in amongst that community of people than you'll see outside. There's more, um, there's uh, more communication, deeper conversations, definitely deeper conversations, definitely more vulnerability, um, definitely more creativity, definitely more latent creativity that's under the surface. And oh, yeah. Uh, not yet exposed or not yet resolved, you know, and, and those, and I feel like that, you know, I said before, there's no creativity without vulnerability, but I feel like in that space, that's why your program would be so successful is because these, these guys and girls are dying to have some creativity coming out of them, something, you know, and they're vulnerable. They're in a vulnerable enough state where that stuff can be extracted and put on show. And that's, well, all they want to do is feel normal and, you know, feel like a slice of normality just for a moment. I know homeless people, people that I've spoken to and books I've read, they just want to be acknowledged. I, I wonder whether the prison is the same thing. These people just want to be acknowledged as human beings. Seen. Seen, yeah. yeah. I've, I've actually had two, two blokes on two separate occasions in prisons come and say to me at the end of my little gig or whatever, um, come and say to me, thank you for looking in my eye huh like m m what's the effect of thanks for speaking to me yeah, yeah. you know for seeing me and i think it's fuck it's not that hard yeah. is it? you know like but you know i understand correctional officers and stuff have a different you know different pressures they're under as well and, and whatever but i feel like if somebody's coming in to say say see one of your shows right and they have that interaction with somebody who is a resident of these places then the very least you can do, or homeless person in the street, or anybody else who's made a mistake that you that you might otherwise Mental judge. Mental health sufferers. Um, is just see them. A friend mm -hmm. of mine, a really good friend of mine, used to run the big issue in Queensland. You know the, yep. the magazine. Well, there's a copy on the table in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so through knowing her, I met a lot of the vendors, and and I did some communication workshops with them, and like presentation skills stuff with some of them, which was just fucking hilarious and awesome but um you know a lot of the, because of her because of my association with her and what she's taught me about homelessness i now have to say hello to every fucking homeless person i ever come across the way that we sweep things under the rug i mean obviously that that kind of invisible the blinkered thing that a lot of people do with with homeless um but also the way that we, we not only sweep prisoners under the rug, make them invisible, we have gone to a place, at least in Australia, where we've made prisons invisible. So prisons used to be Bogo Road Jail here on a freaking hill in plain view of the city, or Alcatraz. You can see it from just about anywhere in, in San Francisco. Um, grew up in WA, Fremantle Jail, smack bang in the middle of the town. Uh, Long, now, Long Bay and Malabar in Sydney is the same. Yeah, now they're all built way out, tucked away, 
even the ones that you drive past on the freeway, you wouldn't know they're there unless you know they're there, you know, because there's, a, there's a, a barriers and, and bushes and stuff. We've even swept the institutions out of sight because I think that it's just easier to remain blinkered to, to build that sort of tough hide. You, you know um, what, though? The, the difference, the one exception to that is children. If you have a toddler with you, which I have done many times and walk past a homeless person, they're saying hello, they're patting their dog. They're asking them what, what, what's wrong with you? Like what's happened? You know, why are you here? Like, is this all your stuff? Like, why have you got the pillow? Blah, blah, like a hundred questions. And, and you see homeless people just light up because they're like, not only are they talking to a toddler, which is fucking hilarious most of the time, but they're also just being seen by somebody. And I, like, I feel like homelessness, especially we're all just two shit decisions away from that. Oh God, yeah, yeah, and I'm, and a lot of parents in that um, circumstance, not you, I'm sure, they're like, come away from that person, or even like the worst one, oh, stop bothering them. It's like, well, what? Stop <laughs> from what? Stop interrupting them from sitting there being ignored by people. Yeah, um, yeah, and I'd say one of the things that I love the most about being a parent is how much I learn, um, often directly learn from my kid mm. you know, and it, it, it is it's um before it's that stage before we've put all the armor on for better or for worse yeah yeah but something changes in that child straight away when they're pulled away from meeting strangers because people shouldn't be kids shouldn't be afraid of strangers it's the same thing as i watched a, a program the other night and he talks about um stopping the kid from jumping into a into a puddle well straight away that creates creativity is just zapped up and the kid just wants to jump in the puddle and be a kid so those two things would be definitely um, contributors to how their worldview is shaped in, in, the, in the coming years I think. I think one of the worst things that we've taught kids is stranger danger that we continue to teach kids is stranger danger when we were at school it was stranger danger stranger danger and what is it 90 something percent of the salts on kids oh, it's more than that it's more than that yeah strangers are uh, no danger. The danger is the uncle, is the grandfather, is the father, is the brother. You know, is very much known to you. There's no, there's very little yeah. danger in strangers. But and we, we instill that fear. Also, my favourite is the kid climbing the tree and the parent says, don't fall. <laughs> oh, no shit, mum. It had never occurred to me not to fall. <laughs> the thing that really shits me, and it came up this week again, and I can't help but bite it. It's one of the one thing I can't resist is when you're in Coles or something and a kid's playing up and the mother says, see that man over there? He's, he's going he's yeah. gonna to belt you or something. No. And wow. it happens, happens not regularly to me, but often. And, and it happened last week and she said, see that man over there? You're making him sad. He's, you're going to make him angry and then he's going to... I didn't think she said he's going to smack you, but it was something like that. And I turned around and looked at her and I thought, fuck you. And I said to this kid, actually, I'm not going to do any of that. I don't know who you are. You can do whatever you want in front of me. You're my cupcake gumdrop. You're the apple of my eye. But then if the kid's in trouble, you say to him, just go to the first person you see. Go to the next door neighbor. <laughs> the so no wonder kids are schizophrenic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't tell my kid, because I've got a 12-year-old at home, my partner's child, I don't tell him to um, not fall out of the tree. When, when we go out, I say, Maybe if the house is on fire, you have to put the remote control down or the PlayStation down and get out. Huh? One thing I'm trying to train myself to do is not say, don't, don't fall. Like, be, be careful, you know? And, and I watched something once and, and they, were tr they were trying to change that narrative to instead of be careful, to have fun. You know, like, like oh, that's awesome that you're doing that. Like, whatever. But I still, I still struggle with the stuff that, you know, I think about what my parents, my parents wouldn't have even been watching me climb onto the roof. They wouldn't have even known <laughs> whose roof I was climbing onto. And now I'm, you know, all over them and want to know all those things. But I, I, I've, I've sort of, I kind of got halfway now where I say to my, one of my boys, especially, I'll say, you reckon that's a good idea? Yeah. And he'll go, oh, nah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> You're giving them the agency. Yeah. You're saying. Yeah, but it's a, but it's a pretty loaded question. I'm like, sure. hey, you reckon that's a good idea? Like, it's pretty clear I don't think that's a good idea, but... I get that off my partner almost daily when I get dressed. Are you wearing that? Yeah. Not anymore, apparently. 
I thought songs with jeans look pretty cool. Just myself. Well, I'm hoping it does because that's all I ever wear. So let's. It's a faux pas, but I uh, I wear my thongs and jeans. Depends where you're going. And my sunglasses. Is that I a... don't think I don't think there's anywhere that thongs and jeans aren't inappropriate. Oh. So it's been so awesome talking to you, Nick. I just want to say yeah. again, it's Nick Bowditch, N I C K B O W D I T C H. All Correct. the techniques. Uh, at Nick Bowditch across everything or nickbowditch.com. All right, Nick, it's so good. I, it, what the impetus for this was actually one of your posts where you said, Where would you be if you didn't have your fear? So that was a big push for me to try and get something started here with Rob on this podcast. So oh, mate, I'm stoked. I'm stoked with that. And uh, yeah, I love what you guys are doing and just the, the spirit behind it is awesome. And yeah, I'm more than happy to be involved. It's you know, I can remember not that long ago when America was the, was the aspirational target of everyone. Like, you know, if only we could be more like them or fucking me. No, no one wants to like, and surely. And now they've got Donald Trump or Weekend at Bernie's. Is he even alive? Like, I have not seen him, Bernie Sanders. No, he's, he's not running. So that's why. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> I thought you were calling um, Joe Biden. Biden Weekend at Bernie's well, he, because he's he mostly dead. Um, he was waving at the sky the other day. That was yesterday. He can at least make most of a sentence, which is a <laughs> start. I remember the days when George Bush was president. We went, we will never see anyone dumber than this president of the United States. Yeah. Like, Come back, George. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, it's it's a worry. Like it's it's a worry because they still are a yardstick of comparison for the world. And yeah, yeah, I, I just don't think I don't think they deserve to be that. Quickly. I don't know. Late Roman Empire. In that in that case, Trump really is Nero playing playing the fiddle while Rome burns. Yeah, or that bloke who made his horse a senator. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's Caligula. Yeah, Caligula. It? Yeah. So they were still very powerful, but like the rest of the world was going, these guys have power over us. Yeah. <laughs> Surely we can put an end to that. That's not. Yeah. This isn't right. Surely. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Only question would be, what comes next, hey? Who knows? Well, I think actually computers, AI is taking over social media. We're all going to be locked in our houses. We're going to be on the social media. Because the thing is, we say now as 50 and 40-year-olds that uh, it could never happen. But the young kids growing up today are growing up with the mask, with the little social interaction. So when they're 40, it's just a slight step to say, all right, well, now everyone stays home. It's too dangerous. We've got robotic cars. They'll take you to work. They'll drop you back in. The Hunger Games is happening. I think you've been watching too much Black Mirror, Steve. Skynet is going to be turned on very soon. Skynet. No, it's going to be... He, uh, Gates is... Um, he, he's fucking with the DNA of mosquitoes to eat mosquitoes. So mm. it'll be robotic uh, mosquitoes that hunt us down, not Skynet. Crikey. I love the world you live in, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks. No worries, boys. Join us next time on the Tweet Butcher... In the block. What a, a shit show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 